between the visual cortex was, you know, quote, if you were a sighted person, what, what it would do. If you're not a sighted person, well, it'll just do something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's not, and, it, and so that is a very, very strong argument for that. There's a famous scientist, um, Bakarita, who did an experiment where he, I'm trying to remember the animal he used, um, maybe you recall it. But anyway, um, it'll come to me. A ferret, I think it was a ferret. Mm-hmm. We took the, they took a, before the animal's born, he took the optic nerve and ran it over to one part of the, a different part of the neocortex and took the auditory nerve and ran it to a different part of the neocortex. You know? right. <laughs> Basically right. rewired the animal. I'm not sure we do these experiments today, but, and, you know, and, and the argument was that the animals, you know, still saw and still heard and so on, maybe not as well as a, an unaltered one, but the evidence was that, yeah, that really works. Yeah, so, so what is genetically determined and what is learned here? I mean, it seems that the genetics, at minimum, are, are determining what is hooked up to what initially, right? You know, barring. Yeah, that was roughly, yeah. roughly, that's right. I think, you know, like where do the eyes, the optic nerve from the eyes, where do they project? And where do the regions that get the input from the eyes, where do they project? And so this rough sort of overall architecture is, is specified. And as we just talked through trauma and other reasons, sometimes that architecture can get re- rewired. I think also the, the, the basic algorithm that goes on in each of these cortical columns, the, the circuitry in the, in, inside the neocortex is pretty well determined by, by genetics. And in fact, what one of Myocast's arguments was that humans, the human neocortex got large, and we have a very large one relative to our body size, just because all it had to, all evolution had to do was discover just make more copies of these columns. You know, you don't have to you don't have to do anything new. Just make more copies, and that's something easy for genes to specify. Mm. And so, human brains got large quickly in evolutionary time by that just replicate more of it type of thing. Okay, so let's uh, go beyond the human now and uh, talk about artificial intelligence. And um, before we talk about the risks or the imagined risks. Tell me what you think the path looks like going forward. I mean, what are we doing now, and what do you think we need to do to have our dreams of true artificial general intelligence realized? Well, uh, you know, today's AI, as powerful as it is and successful as it is, I think most senior AI practitioners will admit, and many of them have, that they don't really think they're intelligent. You know, they're, they're really wonderful pattern classifiers and they can do all kinds of clever things, but there are very few practitioners who would say, hey, this AI system that's recognizing faces is really intelligent. And, and there's a sort of a lack of understanding what intelligence is and how to go forward and how do you make a system that could, could solve general problems, could do more than one thing, right? And so in the second part of my book, I lay out what I believe are the requirements to do that. And my approach has always been, for 40 years, has been like, well, I think we need to first figure out what brains do and how they do them. And then we'll know how to build intelligent machines because we just don't seem able to intuit what an intelligent machine is. <laughs> so I think what I, the way I look at this problem, if we want to make, you know, what's the, what's the recipe for making an intelligent machine, is you have to say, what are the principles by which the brain works that we need to replicate and which principles don't we need to replicate? And so I, I made a list of these in the book, but the, the, if you can think of a very high level, they have to have some sort of embodiment. They have to have the ability to move their sensors somehow in the world. You know, you can't really learn how to use tools and how to, you know, run factories and, 
and how to you know, do things unless you can move in the world. And it requires these reference frames I was talking about because movement requires reference frames. That's not a controversial statement. It's just, it's just a fact. You're going to have to have know where things are in the world. And, and then the final, there's a set of things, but one of the other big ones, which we haven't talked about yet, and which is where the title of the book comes from, A Thousand Brains, is that the way to think about our neocortex, it has 150,000 of these columns. We have essentially 150,000 separate modeling systems going on in our brain, and they work together by voting. And so that concept of a distributed hmm. intelligence system is important. We're not just one thing. We, it feels like we're one thing, but we're really 150,000 of these things. And we're only conscious of being one thing, but that's not really what's happening under the covers. So those are some of the key ideas. I would just stick to very, very high ideas. It has to have an embodiment. It has to be able to move its sensors. It has to be able to organize information and reference frames. And it has to be distributed. And that's how we can do multiple sensors and sensory integration, things like that. Hmm. I guess I... I question the criteria of um, embodiment and, and movement, right? I mean, I, I understand that, practically speaking, that's how a useful intelligence can get trained up in our world to do things, you know, physically in our world. But it seems like you could have a perfectly intelligent system, you know, i.e. a mind uh, that is turned loose on you know, simulated worlds and or are capable of solving problems that don't require effectors of any kind. 